0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our
1: industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. Julie and I had the honor and pleasure of chatting with Amanda Layden. When mid market companies want to dramatically boost the strategic execution effectiveness of their leadership teams and maintain market momentum, they turn to Amanda Layden and her team. Amanda has over 15 years of experience in international businesses, leading teams on five continents and traveling over to 40 countries. She's worked with companies in a number of diverse industries, including technology, healthcare, hospitality, and the beverage industry. Amanda's heart is truly in social justice and change. She shared her deep passion for making a world a more equitable place for all to thrive. So sit back, relax, grab your favorite Maker's Mart cocktail and enjoy the show. Amanda, we are so excited to have you today on Served Up. Thank you
2: so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you inviting me onto the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. We would love to
1: know, you know, about your journey. I think our listeners would really like to know, you know, like, where do you live? What inspired you to really jump into the
2: beverage industry? So I currently live in San Diego, California. However, I am from Des Moines, Iowa. So I like to say, you know, I didn't really grow up in the rolling vineyards or with wine on my table, you know, really in growing up in Des Moines, Iowa, we paired all of our food with milk. So it wasn't something that, you know, I didn't even know there was a beverage industry in all honesty. You know, I knew there were, there was an agricultural industry because I grew up in a state where that was a prime focus, but I went off to college in Washington, D.C., Thinking that I would become a lawyer, mainly because I used to like to argue a lot and I was pretty good at it. But um, I recognized along my journey that it wasn't really my calling. And to fast forward the story, I went to business school. So I went to grad school at my same university, American in Washington, DC. And uh, I was social chair of our business school class. And so I decided to plan a wine tasting for our cohort, our our group of MBA students, because I thought, you know, all of us are going to graduate. All of us are going to be these high powered consultants and bankers and, you know, whatever I thought we were going to be. And we needed to know how to order wine on a wine list. Now, mind you, at that time, I only really knew one brand of wine. And so I called up that winery and said, hey, do you have anybody that would be willing to talk to a bunch of business school students and pour wine for us and teach us how to taste? And lo and behold, they did. So they sent a woman out. Well, actually, she may have already been in D.C. at the time, but she uh, was very kind and came to our university and conducted a tasting for us. And it was at that point where I recognized, like, this is actually an industry. And she at the time said to me, hey, you know, Amanda, you have a great palate. And I was like, palette? Like, I don't paint. I'm not an artist. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So, um, you know, she said, you really should consider pursuing a career in the beverage industry. So that's where my journey began. And it didn't begin immediately. I went off and I worked in New York for about a year and a half. And I had this kind of hankering of, you know, this industry is very intriguing. I know both of you love it as well. And I recognized as I started to do my research and she was sending me bottles from their winery. So she would, I would get a package. It would have a magazine in it. It would have articles. It would have bottles of wine. And she really piqued my interest. And so it didn't happen immediately that I went into the beverage industry, but that's really how I got started because of her. And still to this day, I've been trying to email her for like years to thank her for opening me up to this beautiful industry, uh, which is, which is the beverage industry.
0: That's incredible. So share the brand. What brand was that? And who was actually Kendall Jackson.
2: Okay. That's a great brand for sure. Yes. And it was really the only brand I knew. So again, I came from Iowa, you know, on our, our dinner tables, either milk or, um, you know, the big jugs of white Zinfandel. That's what my son drank. And I really didn't know that there was this, you know, vast industry with so many different interesting and intriguing wines. And, um, you know, I remember her name to this day. And like I said, I've been trying to find her. Her name is Lily Shee Thomas, and she's in California somewhere. I think she left Kendall Jackson some time ago to start her own brand. Uh, so maybe this, this podcast will help me find her, but um, it was Kendall Jackson. And I was lucky enough at the time, Jess Jackson was still alive and they were doing some things on Capitol Hill to lobby and to help change the wine laws in America. And she invited me and a colleague to come onto Capitol Hill and to taste with all of the winemakers. We did a blending exercise. I got to meet Jess Jackson, who for anybody who did know him, it's kind of larger than life. And uh, it was a really interesting experience, even that, you know, as she was really talking to me about the different sides of the industry, the penny didn't drop until a couple years later. And what happened a couple of years later? <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was living in uh, Hoboken, which is, you know, for folks who know it's across the Hudson in um, just across New York city. I was working in New York city. I hated what I was doing. I really just, I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. I, I don't like living here either. Um, I was having a hard time assimilating into New York. And um, long story short, I worked for a French company. And so I used to travel in between New York and Paris and I had been at a party uh, in Paris and it's, it's a convoluted part. It was a, con- it's a convoluted story, but I'd been at a party which was the launch of a hedge fund at an embassy. Anyway, I'm American. There's another American there, and we start to we start talking. And he asks me what I do. I explain what I do. I go back to New York, and I'm having one of these kind of crises moments where I'm out at a bar. It's a Friday night with a girlfriend of mine, and uh, I, you know we've had about five gin and tonics. I think we were drinking at the time, and she said, "What are you going to do? You know, you're not happy with." Your job. I think I had just quit as well. So I was like, I'm just leaving my role and I th- I'm gonna try to get into the wine industry. And um I said, I really want to work in this industry. And the person, the other American I met at this party in Paris had told me, you know, there's he was living in London. He said, you know, there's a wine school in London. And if you ever wanted to pursue your dream and go to wine school, um, I have a spare bedroom in London. And so anyway, we're it's this Friday night, we're having gin and tonics. And she said, What are you gonna do? And I said, Oh, well, remember that guy that I met who has that apartment in London and that place I can live. He told me there's a wine school in London, which we now know is the WSET, but there's a wine school in London. And um, I don't know, he offered me his spare bedroom. And she looked at me and she said, you're not happy here. You have nothing to lose. Why don't you go? And so I walked out of that bar in Hoboken. I booked myself a plane ticket. And six weeks later, I was in London and uh, I enrolled in the WSET. Wow.
1: That <laughs> is quite a story Amanda. Oh my god. So then where did you go from London?
2: Where did just take I, us around the world, girl. <laughs> I actually stayed in London. So I I went through and I did my um diploma so I st- I kept studying at the WICT. I got uh my first role in the wine industry for a distributor who's focused on Italian wines. And then I worked kind of on all sides of the industry to try to figure it out. I worked in a shop. um, I worked in sales. uh, I worked as a brand ambassador. um, And so I stayed in London for a decade. Um, And I left the industry, though, while I was there, uh, a company that I was working for got bought out and we all lost our roles. And so at that time, I was like, I I was disillusioned. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do in the industry and how I'm going to make this work. And so I left the industry and I went in and worked for a company that has nothing to do with wine. um, But still knowing that I had a passion for it. Um, And so, you know, I was fortunate enough having lived in London and working for these amazing companies to visit a lot of vineyards around the world. At one time we were sourcing from South Africa and Argentina. And so I was able to get a really great you know, really, really fast, you know, knowledge in terms of all the wines I was able to get my hands on, in particular, the fact that I was, you know, sitting my exams and we were in a tasting group every week. And so, you know, the thing about London is that it's not like, you know, the UK is not like America, it's an open market. And so that has its pluses, it has its downsides. But, you know, London, if you think back to historically about the wine industry and, you know, the ties with the English, uh, the Brits, you know, there's a lot of wine there in the market. And so I was fortunate enough to meet a lot of people, a lot of um, the journalists we now know that come out of the UK um, and taste a lot of incredible wines. And so I I really had this, like, I I would say kind of rapid education in the UK because there's so many wines that come through the United Kingdom and you have something like a Berry Brothers and Rudd, which is, you know, the oldest wine shop in England. And I'm sure there's some history around it too, maybe in other places as well. Wow. I mean, what a journey there. And, and so fast
0: forward, tell us a little bit about, so obviously you spent a lot of time in the wine industry working in different roles, which I think is always super valuable. Um, love the fact that you went through WSET, um, and for the listeners that are learning the big one in in the US is um you know the quartermaster sommeliers and at southern glazers we provide both right so we put our teams through quartermaster and wset and i've done both and it's it's great because um it is a little bit different i feel like quartermasters is a, from a very american uh, taste profile perspective whereas I feel that WSET really kind of shines a light on old world winemaking and whatever, but we're not going to get geeky about wine right now. Um, (laughs) Because what I really want to know is, you know, tie that all into what you're doing now, because, you know, obviously Bridget and I have gotten to know you over the last year, and we are just so amazed with all the work that you do and the energy that you bring and just, you know, all, all the just social advocacy work that you're doing for. People that are underrepresented in the wine industry, and somebody that, you know, myself and and all of us that have been in wine industry over a decade, right? We we've, we've kind of gotten used to the fact that it was one way, and in the last two years, it's just really turned upside down. So tell us how you how you kind of got
2: to where you are today, and and tell our listeners what you do. Yeah. So I should say I got transferred back to the United States for my old position, um, which. Uh, I didn't last long in because of where I was transferred to and, and the, the politics of the organization I was working for, which that's another story probably for another day. But um, I then went back and came back into the trade. So uh, I started working for a distributor here in America um, and specifically for the Moet Hennessy brands. And uh, then I left and I started my own small wine, import and distribution business. And so, uh, ended up I had business partners. It didn't work out. Uh, and when I left that, I started a consultancy business. So I work in organizations, really aligning you know people and their growth strategies. And I started something, which is why we're here today, called Vino Karma, uh, back in 2014, with the idea that um, we can bring people together over food and wine, and proverbially break bread, or you know really break bread, um, to talk about things that really matter, and to each be a part of the change that we want to see in the world. So Vino Karma started as a consumer-facing, really, events vehicle, events and experiences, and and we still do that today. Uh, Each of our events really has a social impact component to it. And then I started watching what was going on in the industry over the past couple of years, as you said, and, and kind of thinking about my journey And the things that I saw, which are partially part of the reason why I left the industry, uh, that I felt like, wow, you know, we really haven't moved the needle that much. We're starting to, we need to be doing more. So on the trade side or the industry side of Vino Karma, we really uh, take a concerted effort to highlight underrepresented voices across the industry. So for our consumer-facing events and also for our industry events, um, we really want to showcase voices that may not be heard because, you know, the systems and structures that exist are, are systems and structures in the industry that have existed for a very long time. And it's very hard for underrepresented voices, Be you a, whether you're a distiller, a winemaker, um, whether you own a small restaurant, whatever it might be, it's really hard. Uh, to break in and and have access to this industry, which is sometimes hard to get into. So with Vino Karma, we have three core pillars. The first is diversity, equity, inclusion, and representation. The second is innovation. And the third is social change. And so we, um, you know, again, we have a recorded show as well, where we highlight industry voices who are doing really incredible things, really to push them to the fore. Uh, We also have um, live events where we're doing industry impact forums to have conversations to shift people's perspectives and hopefully move them to action. And then we're also hosting our first conference coming up in October around those three key pillars uh, that I mentioned. And so it's really, you know, for me, it's really important that we see change at all levels um, and we see change across the value chain. So, you know, there's a lot of things we could get into with the value chain and with, um, you know, the social change and the relationships and the human interactions that need to really change in order for action to be taken. But, you know, at the crux of it, that's really what we do at Vino Karma. And
1: I love all of those things. And I know that Julie does as well. We definitely stand behind the mission um that you are putting out there to all and grouping people in uh to your mission is is important and it's powerful and highlighting those that maybe wouldn't have had the chance to have a mic passed to them. Um can you talk to us about some of the guests that you have had on, maybe some of the more interesting folks that you've spoken to and about some of their messaging.
2: Oh there have been so many and, and you know, each of them comes with their own story. I, you know, the first person that uh, I interviewed for the Vino Karma show is a gentleman named Andre Houston Mack. I know a lot of people know who he is. He's a name in the industry and he is um, an African-American. He's a Somme. He's a sommelier. Uh, he also has a wine brand or or a couple of wine brands. Um, and he makes wine out of Oregon, and he also has uh, a restaurant in brooklyn i mean he 's this like multi passionate multi hyphenate entrepreneur and you know i he you know shared with me just some things around how you know it's kind of was a little bit surprising to him that he 's now you know people are following him or looking up to him because he was just doing what he felt like you know, he needed to do in the industry and following his passion. But I really think he's somebody that um, is paving the way for other folks to see themselves in wine, being a sommelier, being a winemaker. That's also being an entrepreneur, which I think is really powerful to see all of that. Not to mention he has four young boys. (laughs) So he has four children at home and is doing all of these incredible things. And, you know, I think so so that, that's, that's one person. The other thing that I find really fascinating. Um, so, you know, last May, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, I interviewed a man named Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And so that's part of the work we do at Vino Karma is that we also highlight influencers and thought leaders with our public facing events, and then also pair them with wines by underrepresented individuals. And it was, you know, really interesting to have the conversation around race in America and, um, you know, what that means for all of us as we take steps to become anti-racist. And I share that story because I, you know, as part of the Vino Karma show, the recorded show, I interviewed TJ Douglas, the owner of the Urban Grape in Boston, and um, that's a small wine shop. He and his wife Hadley own it and run it. And, you know, we were talking about what it means to be a black man in America and also to have something like a wine shop in downtown Boston. And he shared his story. It's about two minutes in, I think, to our conversation where there had been peaceful protests in Boston and then they turned into riots and their shop got broken into. So their shop was broken into glass was broken and um, he went to go to the shop in downtown Boston. And he's like, you know, six foot something black man, shop owner, and their security system was going off and he couldn't get it to turn off. And so um, his wife called ATD, the security company to say, you know, we can't get it off. My husband's there. And then she was like, my husband's there. You know, they're going to think he's an intruder. And if the police show up with this black man who still owns the shop, and it gives me like, when I think about it, it like almost brings me to tears. I'm like, gives me goosebumps every time I think about the story he's sharing because this is the reality of where we are in America. And I think still in the industry itself to a certain degree, you know, the systems and the structures all across the board of our society have to change. But anyway, the woman on the other end of the phone could hear Hadley, you know, in her voice and they were seconds away from the police showing up and she kind of did them what I would call a kindness and didn't call the police. And they managed to get, the, um, the security system, but, you know, stopping, they managed to stop the security system, but those things we think about, which it's not just what's going on in the industry itself, but what's going on in the industry with our colleagues and our allies and the things that they have to think about that we don't, or I don't, you know, I don't personally. Um, and so that's, that story is something that really struck me. And it's like, what can, can't even imagine being in the shoes of him or his wife at that moment in time. Um Especially considering that you know the riots had just happened, you know their response and and uh, you know i'd love to go back and and they sent out a or they they posted something on it and they posted something in their newsletter last summer uh after they got broken into and it still strikes me to this day their viewpoint in a very you know what I would call chaotic unsettling time, which was you know it's only glass it's only wine it's not the human body, no, no lives were taken, and we're fine. And I was just like, "Whoa,
0: <laughs> that's you know." I mean, to hear a story like that, and to hear people's experiences, it's just, it's heart wrenching, and it's just not fair, right? I mean, nobody should feel like that. Like, wait, I don't want to call the cops because I don't want them to think this and and whatnot. It, and it, it's just, um, you know, it's it's such a sad world that that we even have to that people even have to feel like that and. What do you think? I mean, do you feel that change is coming within the industry? I, I feel like there was a lot of attention around it. And I know a lot of companies spoke up and and I know that, you know, we had everything go on with kind of the court of master sommelier's and everybody's just putting out there like we we want to be better. We, you know, I know the wine industry as a whole wants to be more diverse and, and start that journey. What do you see? Do you see that it's going in the right direction? Do you feel like the the energy and, and the um the engagement is still there or has it
2: died down? I've seen I've seen both sides of it. So I think there's groups of individuals that are being um you know really proactive in leveraging their own voices, their own um positions of power and, you know, their place in the industry, I still see there's too many silos. So there's not enough, uh, you know, leaders, which really can affect the change, getting in a room together and saying, we're all experiencing this. We're all seeing things, whether it's uh, equity and access, whether it is elevating people of color into, you know, decision-making positions, whether it is talking really cohesively and creating action plans around sustainability and um, you know, environmental impact. You know, I still feel like there's too many silos, talking and not enough taking action. It's interesting that you know, we're hosting our first conference in October, as I mentioned, and we're having conversations with organizations about coming in as um, partners, about coming in as sponsors, you know, sharing their, how they've created change, be it through their programming with diversity, equity, and inclusion, be it through their programming with sustainability. And we've had some great responses. We've also had responses where organizations have said, no, we're we're very far advanced in these conversations and we don't need to be a part of this. That just is very interesting to me. So that tells me either you're still sticking your head in the sand or you really, at your seats of power, have people that are pretty homogeneous, and you're not reaching back down to say, "Let's talk about the voice of the people that work in our organizations, all the way from the vineyards to the distilleries to the breweries, on up. Um, we're also ha- seeing, which I think is very interesting, too, you know, as we've reached out to some organizations uh, across the beverage industry, be it beer, spirits, wine uh, some organizations just saying, we're not ready." And I honor that too. You know, I think that's great. If you say we're just not ready to create the change, but we're trying to figure it out, that's great too. But we can help you to have those conversations and to start figuring out what you need to do to bring the voices together to understand what's truly going on. So Julie, I know it's probably a long way to answer your question. And I'm kind of seeing both sides of it right now. And I'm also sensing um, still some some great frustration.
0: Yeah, I I do want to just add to that. You know, and we've, we've talked to so many different DNI leads and, you know, one of our past recordings that we released was with Victoria Russell, who's, um, you know, the first chief diversity and inclusion officer at Beam Centauri. And we talked a little about this, like, well, what can companies do? And I think a lot of people are asking that, well, what can I do? What can I do as a company? How can I, and it's not, you know, with inclusion and, and really valuing diversity, it's not a trend to follow. It's not a new thing to pick up and implement. Like you have to want it and you have to believe in it. You have to believe and believe the facts and the data that show if you want your business to grow, if you want to be relevant and you want to innovate and become better, you've got to want to listen and and see and and engage and and partner with different people that think differently and look differently. And sadly, is if you don't value that, There's no reason that there's no point in knowing what to do because it's not what to do. You, you actually have to value
2: that. Yeah. And, you know, I think you, you bring up an interesting point. So, you know, the census report just came out, right. And Mm, I uh, saw that, (laughs) you know, we see how quickly the face of America is changing and so what does that mean? That means if, you know, our um, diversity is changing, how we identify is changing. That also means that the consumer is changing. And so organizations and brands need to be really wise to start having these conversations. I think when, when the three of us last spoke, you know, it was like, will, will these brands be irrelevant in a few years because the consumer is getting smarter um, they are buying with their dollars. They're looking at what organizations are doing from not only a de perspective, but also a social impact perspective. It's not a nice to have anymore. Um, it's a must have in terms of what you stand for, uh, not just having, you know, like a mouthpiece of we believe in diversity, <laughs> you know, it's um, employees and consumers are paying attention. Absolutely. And it has to come from the leadership. It
1: has to start there. It's very unfair when companies expect it to come from um, their employees, you know, to act and to behave a certain way. And yet they're not doing that themselves. Um, We've seen a lot of that, you know, um, across the board as well. And so, you know, there's definitely so much opportunity still for change um, within the beverage community whether it be with um, like, you know, you spoke very well, by the way, thank you so much, you know, for, for bringing up our friends in the black community that don't always get a voice, but this also goes to the Asian community. It also goes to women, the, the minorities, right. Um, Having that voice and having it actually being listen to in a way where there's action on the receiving end. That does not always happen. But when it does, when it does, magic happens. Mm -hmm. We're all better for it, right? And so what are some of the changes, positive changes that you have seen over the past year
2: in the industry? Well, I first want to say, you know, I think- You just, you just hit on a point, Bridget, which is the magical piece of this. You know, we have a collective power, all of us to influence change. So each of us individually and all of us to influence change. And I think, you know, some of the positive things I'm definitely seeing are leveraging some of those voices, consumers being able to now get their, not all of their beverages. I know it's a little harder for spirits, but really to go direct um, to seller door and to support these smaller or more underrepresented winemakers, um, and even chefs in their local communities. You know, I think the restaurant industry has been hit so hard. And, you know, being able to go out there and say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go support my local restaurant tonight, even if they can't be open, because they really need our support. And those are some things that I think are positive steps that the consumer is influencing. And I also think, you know, we, the three of us spoke about this when, when you were on the Vino Karma show, um, just the use of technology and people being innovative, you know, it's sometimes I think in this industry, more on in the wine side than on the spirit side, they're a little loathe to adapt to the changes that are happening, um, or a little, you know, not as fast to to adapt to some of the changes. And I think that's reaching out to consumers and using their brands and their voices um be to support one another. I'm also seeing a lot more oration, which I think is great. Uh and really necessary if we want to continue to uh make the change that that we all want to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think access to
0: social media and um and and the ability to to really connect with people it's a different time right in the past you you kind of had to hire an advertising agency you had to hire different agencies to really get in front of the consumer through you know two platforms radio tv or three at, or newspaper and everything cost a fortune right yeah. so now you know everybody is a content creator you know the power of um Sharing your preferences of brands all over social media, I mean that is something that um nobody ever expected, and so I do truly believe the power of the people is really showing more than ever now um but I do want to point out you know the one thing that you said as far as people being cut you know, consumers being more aware and expecting that social responsibility from the brands that they choose to invest in. So, obviously, after a tumultuous year, you know, we're all kind of looking at the white paper to close out the year. What happened? You know, what, what are they saying? What's the consumer trends? And the one report that I really appreciated, and I was kind of going back through my notes to find it, and I'm glad I have it, but was the Cantar 2020, how retail is organizing for 2021. And, you know, there were all these different bullets of like habits, lockdown vaccine, and really what do people expect from brands? And a huge percentage of it, of what they expected from brands and suppliers was that not only are they doing something around social justice, but really around initiatives for their own employees, Right. So it's not just about what people are saying. I want to know what the brand is doing. They're getting they're so much more savvy than that. They're going to want to know, hey, brand, what are you doing for your employees? I mean, that's the extent of that. So, you know, when you do have brands that go out there and say, hey, we're all for social justice, but they're not taking care of their own people.
2: You can't hide from that anymore. It's out there. And, you know, I mentioned that, you know, my, my day job is strategy consulting. So (laughs) um, part of what we do with organizations is have these conversations and create these strategies around, you know, what is it you're truly going to do? Because, you know, I, I see there's kind of two groups of consumers, right? There's your, your consumer, which is your employee base. Uh, And then there's your end consumer, which is the one consuming your product. And there's a very, you know, there's that the consumer experience with the employee experience and they are intrinsically linked now. You know, I don't think we would have said that probably a decade ago or maybe even less than a decade ago, but the consumer really wants to know. And, you know, they they're looking, you know, if you say you're giving back whatever, 1% of your proceeds to some cause, relating to an underrepresented community, they'll be like, okay, that's great. But then let's look to see who sits on your board. Let's look to see who's making decisions. Let's look to see who really truly sits in the seats of power in your organization. And, you know, you you really can't get away from that anymore um, because it's, you know, it's forcing companies' hands. And I, I kind of joke with my clients sometimes, but it's not really a joke. It's like you are one social media posts away from ruin, regardless of how big you are. So you better make sure that everything you're putting out is really aligned, not only with your growth strategy, let's put that aside, but also with your values, your mission, your vision, and how you're treating your people. hundred percent. I just wrote that down here, one post
1: away from ruin, because it is so, <laughs> so true. If you are not staying true to your, to your values with your employees not only will the customers see it, but you know, anybody that works with you on the consultant side will see it. Or even those who, who valued your work won't anymore. I mean, it is really the time to walk the walk and talk the talk because people can see through your bullshit is what's happening right now.
2: It is totally. Yeah. 1 million percent. And, you know, here's the thing, like part of what, you know, why I created Vino Karma was to have conversations in a safe space where we can explore the boundaries of what we believe or know to be true to push perspective. And so, you know, we're not always going to get it 100% right, regardless of, you know, how you identify as a human being and also how you identify as a leader, whatever your rank is in your organization. But the fact is that we need to start having some of these conversations across the board and really to listen to other people with uh, different opinions, life experience, and to nurture some of this discourse so that we can come closer to creating, you know, taking action and creating change. Let me ask you something, you know, cause I think that one of the things
1: that just ties us all together, or is it really is important is keeping each other accountable, mm. you know? So keeping each other accountable. So when you say something that you're doing, or if a company is say something that they are doing and it is part of their core values but then you see the complete opposite whether it's on social media if it's in the way that maybe they treat their teams whatever it might be in your experience what repercussions are you seeing and what steps should someone maybe take when they are being a part of that and not wanting to be part of that hmm. world
2: yeah so i think there's a lot here. there's so much in this question because we're still in this, unfortunately, we're still in this place in the way our systems and our, stru- you know, every, things are structured in our society. That's a sad place for still to be. You know, I'm not saying that we should be having people, you know, create bitch sessions and complain for the sake of complaining. I'm saying when there's really something going on in an organization that is not aligned with the values or that is, you know, misaligned in terms of how they're treating people. It's really up to each of us to stand up and say this is not okay. Unfortunately, again, the way some of our organizations are structured, the person who stands up sometimes is the one who is is punished, so to speak. So, I don't know the solution in terms of changing that from a structural standpoint. Um, you know, we're still seeing that, but on the flip side, we're also seeing that um, you know we have this culture right now where when People are calling attention to something that is not um, fair, not right, or misaligned. And people are saying, we are not going to stand for it anymore. And either they decide not to purchase the product, they decide to take to social media. So, you know, I'm seeing both sides of that. In, in terms of organizations and, and what steps they can take, I think there's a couple of things. I think number one, you need to start having conversations across the board. Well, I should I should rephrase that. You need to start having conversations, period. So not only with the people that sit on your board, the people that are on your leadership teams, as well as people within and throughout the organization to understand the perspective of what's going on. And you need to take it seriously.
1: I think that people are really afraid of the repercussions of when they do want to stand up and say, hey, knock it off. It's not cool. It's not right. And it does not align with what we are putting out there. And it happens. We I see it all the time on social media. Yeah. I mean, all the time. So, you know, when somebody's on the receiving end of that, not even receiving it, the giving end of that thing, the one who is standing, you know, it can be a difficult spot to be in.
2: It can be a very tough spot to be in. And I think part of that is also creating some allies across the organization. It's also time for organizations to not look at HR as paper pushers, right? You know, if, if you don't have the right mechanisms in place to allow for psychological safety in your organization, then that's on you. You yeah. know, that's a problem with leadership. That's a problem as an organization. Um, you really should be looking across the board at your entire organization and across the value chain to say, you know, what is it we're standing for? Even if in terms of procurement, you know, how are we um, procuring the things that we need for our organization, um, and does that look like our employee base you know there's there's so many different steps organizations can take, and you know when organizations are on this journey of creating diversity, equity, and inclusion as well as looking at corporate social responsibility and everything else that we've been talking about, which lead to the innovation piece of the things we're talking about in the in the beverage space. No, we suggest one first step is to bring in an outside consultant and create some listening tours. Um, And the leadership has to be prepared and ready to hear what those findings are, to know that, you know, we're here to be impartial, but we want to let you know what's going on in your organization. Um, And then I think if you are an organization that says, oh, we're a little bit further along in our journey, you know, you really have to take this seriously and make sure that you have buy-in and commitment at the top to create change and to create, again, that psychologically safe organization. People aren't going to stand up if they've heard that, you know, um, colleague A over here um, stood up and then all of a sudden they are no longer involved in activities for for networking or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever can happen as far as even, you know, being wrongfully dismissed in organizations. But I think the are starting to change and those are heavy and want to maintain their brand and their relationships with their end consumer are starting to think about the future sustainability of what an organization that has and supports um, multiple different um, ethnicities, uh, diversity of thought, uh, multiple different types of individuals with however they identify what that looks like and how it trickles down to the brand experience. Bravo, brava. Beautifully said. Thank you. (laughs) You're
1: welcome.
0: (laughs) I do think that there's an advantage for the smaller organizations, right? And we saw that with COVID. I mean, just getting hit with the pandemic, the first ones to close that couldn't really pivot and and change their concept and put in a to-go program, outdoor dining, grocery store, whatever it is, The ones that couldn't do it were the bigger organizations, you know, I mean, I think national chains got hit really hard and just a lot of our super ultra fine dining restaurants that have multiple partners and, you know, and the ones that, that really thrived in my opinion, from what I saw were the smaller independent, you know, locally owned places. And it was great that they got that opportunity. And for me, it was great to go out there and see some of our most talented um, leaders in, you know, wine and spirits going and and working at these family-owned restaurants because they needed people and really taking their beverage programs up. And and now I see that now that other things are open, the same people aren't there, but they're still thriving, right? So- Mm You know, I think it's, it's really important to these smaller brands that have always thought, what can I do to compete? You know, and, and especially wine, like how do we innovate? There's the wine industry is flooded. There's so much amazing wine, so much amazing mm-hmm. wine, right? Mm-hmm. And all different price points from all over the world. And it's, well, what can we do to be different? Well, you could just not do what everybody else is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, start there, like be different by not being the same. Mm-hmm. And really getting out there and, and changing the wine industry. I love seeing the more, you know, uh, awareness around diverse winemakers, which a lot, which you're doing a lot of, you know, and, and the McBride sisters like totally paving the way and, you know, so many woman owned wineries, um, you know, what Chanel Turner and I'm so glad we connected her with you and like what she's doing. That is so important. And it's not that there were never minority owned wine and spirits suppliers because there were, but now there's a lot more attention and focus. And this, in my opinion, it's what's truly going to change the industry because, Mm. you know, like who really wants to go and sit at like a stuffy wine dinner, like that's 10 courses. You're sitting there watching somebody bloviate about everything that they know about wine for three hours, you know, and everybody's falling asleep.
2: So like, how do we make it more fun and interactive and engaging? Yeah. I mean, If that's a question in terms of how we make it more fun and interactive. It turned into a question. (laughs) 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 How do we make wine more fun? Because I know we have fun when we drink wine. (laughs) I mean, like, so I totally, totally, obviously love wine. It's since the day, uh, Thomas, who was the woman from Kendall Jackson introduced me to it. I was like, this is such a cool product. I also love spirits too. I like beer, but spirits and wine are really my jam. So, um, you know, I, I even, so obviously I did my exams in London. We talked about, and I was like, Oh, these people need to get over themselves. Like, you know, this is something that has a story behind it. And I think one of the ways that we can make this product, whether it's wine, beers, or spirits more fun is to connect it to story and to talk about like the person behind the bottle. If they're, you know, if it's a brand where there is a story behind it, I think the other thing is, is like, Stop some of the bullshit language. Like, you know, just because you're smelling like, I don't know, uh pff, rocks, raspberries, rocks, rocks loganberries. berries. Like, who's ever had a Loganberry? Like, like a wet stone. I'm like, give me a like, break. Yeah, like when's the last time you licked a wet stone? Like seriously. I mean, maybe when you were like two and we're putting like everything in your mouth, but you're not two. And so you're not licking stones. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure the consumer is like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, why don't you just make this easy for me? Like, do I like it? Do I not like it? What would you eat with it? How do we like bring it down to a way? And I'm not saying that wine should be dumbed down because it's a very interesting and unique topic. And there's a lot of academics that go into it. And the people who have all of their degrees, I laud them. It is hard work. However, there is a way to say we're going to do this in a really fun and interesting way to make this like you want. You want to jump into the glass, um, and I, you know part of what we do at Vino Karma is connect to story too, and that's why when we do our events, we're connecting it to and bringing it down to a level where the person who's drinking the wine is like, oh, that's really. cool remember something about this, um not that like feel intimidated that I'm not tasting wet rock, so there's that piece. the other piece is back to language, you know around this eurocentric language that we're all taught when we taste wine, and we have so many nationalities and people coming into the beverage industry that we kind of need to like rip up those you know the tasting wheel and be like, okay, so what else can we talk about? We can talk about, I'm getting some notes of jerk chicken in here. And I'm also tasting like, I don't know, my grandmother's kanji, like, you know, whatever it is, like, let's start to look at who's actually drinking the beverage and be like, what does it mean to you? And let's connect it to what you feel. When, when I do my tastings for Vino Karma, one of, you know, the traditional tasting notes are, you know, what's on the nose, what's on the palate, what do you, what are you seeing? And then I also put how does it make you feel? Because the original way that I got into wine, you know, there was a couple of things that kept like these these clues kept dropping that I should be in this industry. And one of them was um being on a plane and somebody handing me a wine they had in their their bag. And I was like, Oh, what is this? Like I have never had and this is also on a plane, so it's probably not tasting its best, but you know i had this kind of like a penny of this sense of place and taking me back to somewhere and i still to this day remember what that wine was because of like this feeling it gave me and i whenever i have a good wine and a good meal i remember the wine and the meal because of where i was and how i felt and who i was with you know so i think it's it's also tapping into you know just being like there's no right or wrong and what are you feeling right now? And what does it remind you of? I'm so glad
0: you said that. Like it is so personal. Wine is so personal, right? And it's not, you can't just look at a chart of those, you know, the standard tasting notes and whatever, and be able to relate with it. And I think that's why it's been so difficult for consumers to feel comfortable and, and accepted and included in the wine industry. And that's something for me, like when I started learning wine, it would be like, oh my God, this smells or tastes like red bean paste, you know, yeah. that I grew up with. Right. I'm like, oh my God, I get red bean. And everybody's looking at me like, what are you talking about? There's no red bean. And, and I'm like, but I, I smell it. I taste it. And, and, you know, and to another point, it's wine is so nostalgic. That's what mm-hmm. makes it so amazing. And, and just like your story, right. Is being able to remember that moment. And if you can get people to really understand that and feel comfortable with it, like, that's it. That's that golden ticket, not, Hey, Rose is really hot right now. So you should drink a Rose or, you know, however else you sell wine.
2: I also, you know, I I said, I've been fortunate enough to travel all over the world and, um, source and taste at different vineyards. And anytime I'm in, uh, you know, some of these places that just surprise me, it's, it just, it brings me back to this idea of like family and hospitality Um, you know, people opening their doors. I've had so many incredible experiences, like being in Galicia in the north of Spain and tasting albarinos at a family-owned, family-run vineyard. And uh, they wouldn't let us leave until they brought out their local country cheese and big prawns for us to taste and, you know, feeling like you're connected not only to that person, but also to this sense of place especially when it's a vineyard like that where it's been in a family for generations upon generation and you're like whoa like I'm a part of something and buying that person's wine or you know doing something to support them is really meaningful to them um but also in terms of you know the the local economy and so I know I'm I'm kind of going off off tangent right now but it's you know, I just I think this is part of the reason why I fell so much in love with this industry because of the culture, because of the history, because of the stories, um, and because of being able to place myself in part of of their journey, um, even without, you know, obviously not being born in Galicia, being born in Des Moines, Iowa, but you know, being able to feel that I'm 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 a part of something is is really what I think it's all about.
1: Yeah, it's definitely about, you know, community. You, you nailed it. It's about hospitality, about that sense of um, like that warm, fuzzy feeling that you get through your memories and through community and through family and friends. I mean, the spirit side is the exact same way. So, yeah. you know, I think I that's agree. what draws a lot of us into this industry and why we love it so much. Right. Can you tell us more about your conference? Like, yeah. Tell us when it is, how can we register? <laughs> can you give us that information, please? Sure We'd love to know and I know our
2: listeners are would just love to know. So, first of all, we welcome everyone at the conference. Be it uh folks in the beer side of the industry, spirit side, wine side, uh, we will hopefully be representing all of those sides. We also welcome consumers. So for this year, we've actually pulled it back. It will be 100% virtual. So we will be hosting it on you know, a virtual platform that all of us are, are used to getting on. And we will be focusing on those three core pillars that I mentioned in the beginning. So the first being diversity, equity, inclusion, and representation. The second, uh, innovation. And the third piece being uh, social impact. So we have some fabulous speakers across the industry who will be sharing their knowledge. Everything from, um, you know, talking about the real conversation that needs to move on from unconscious bias, you know, the, the real conversations that need to be had around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and hearing from diverse voices, to uh, talking about um, changes in innovation and what we see for the future of the beverage space. So somebody who will be talking about A single serve uh, mimosa uh, wine based uh, drink that you beverage adult beverage that you can have uh, and and talking to the panel about what's going on in investment and how we need to to think about the future of innovation to you know a master of wine who's going to be talking about uh, sustainability and true sustainability um, from the vineyard level up to the top so we have a real exciting roster of people that will be sharing their knowledge. Um, They will all be for the most, yeah, actually now they're all live um, just on, you know, a a virtual platform so that folks can interact with them, ask questions in real time. And we're super excited to have these conversations. And the goal of the conference really isn't, you know, to have a conference for conference sake. It's really to push the boundaries um, and, and get outside of the proverbial box in terms of these three core pillars, and really to move people to action, so whether that means that folks take the conversation back internally to their organization, they think about one small change they could make with their brand or social media, they think about how they could connect with the consumer, we're not sure exactly what the actions are going to be and the key takeaways, but we're really excited to have some meaningful conversations. So the conference itself is on october twenty eighth uh, starting at <clears throat> excuse me nine a m Pacific, so 12 pm Eastern. And it is a full day conference. There will be opportunities for networking. There will be opportunities to interact with the speakers, as I mentioned. And there will be opportunities to also share your own opinions and your voice. So, folks can go to VenokarmaConference.com, all one word. And tickets are available there on the website. So, watch this space. We're starting to do some more marketing and announcing speakers in the upcoming weeks. And sharing part of their stories. And uh, we really hope folks will come out and and attend and be a part of the change. That
0: sounds so wonderful. And I'm so, you know, we're so thankful that you're putting out these resources. And for any of our listeners, be a part of it, engage in it, and, you know, and, and take that next step towards action. I think that's really important. And, Amanda, again, you know, Bridget and I are big fans of yours. We love what you do. And we always have so much fun chatting with you. I feel like we could talk forever. And and I hope we can meet in person sooner than later, um, despite the the little bit of backwards progress we're having in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, hopefully things get better and and we want to continue this conversation with you. We wish you all the best for your conference and we're going to help you promote it. and
2: you know, please join us again soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate both of you taking time out of your, your busy schedules and also for, you know, being willing to have these conversations. It's so important. And I cannot wait until the three of us can meet and have a cocktail and some wine and wax lyrical over the change we're all creating in the world.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I think we're going to be friends for life if we're not already. So I'm super excited. And just, you know, on behalf of our served up team, just want to wish you just a lot of great health and a ton of peace. Thank you so much, Amanda. Cheers to you.
2: Thank you. Cheers to both of you.
0: Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Killed the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes.
2: Cheers!